welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm joined here today by Mohammed Hashim of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. And I'm so happy he's here today because the CRRF has just released a survey of 2,000 Canadians conducted in January 2021 about online hate speech, a topic that is currently being debated right now at committees and parliaments, but is also, I think, clearly at the forefront of everyone's attention, given everything that's happened in the United States, and probably if you're just a human online. So, Mohammed, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So usually when we have people come on, we have them kind of introduce themselves, who they are. And, you know, this is obviously the first time the Canadian Race Relations Foundations has been on the podcast. So for listeners unfamiliar with the foundation, could you talk about what you do? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me here today. I, I am new to this job. I just got appointed three months ago to the to be the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. The organization's got a really interesting uh, history because it actually started from an apology. And during World War II, Japanese Canadians were interned in Canada. And during the Mulroney government, the government decided to apologize to the Japanese community. And during that apology, they committed to some funds as well as creating this foundation. And this foundation is a legacy of the Japanese Canadian community towards the fight against racism from then until now, and hopefully for a long time coming. So what are the kind of activities that you do? So we do a variety of things. We do research, we do public opinion research, talking about the implications of race by the pandemic, how racialized Canadians have been impacted, how is racism going up or going down in different places across the country and to whom and to how, and to just get a better understanding of how things are in Canada in terms of race relations and, and where, the, where are the gaps that we need to start addressing. So our organization has had a number of different approaches. We do education on that. We do workshops with different like, companies and nonprofits. We do uh, collaborative projects with you know, different indigenous communities or with uh, different faith communities or with the Jewish community, the Muslim community, the anti-hate network. You know, we, we collaborate with a whole variety of different actors on different projects. And that's either to either put programs together you know, we're doing the Indigenous podcast that we've hired an Indigenous company to put together for us, where we're going to talk about where the, where the current fights are in terms of land claims. And, you know, how do people express themselves, how their expression is taken, and what the pushback looks like. So we're not, we're, we're starting to go in a direction where we're going to lean into issues with a bit more, I hope, a little bit of zing. <laughs> and I'm all about and, zing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think you can talk about race relations in this day and age without having uh, a bit of an edge on it. If you just talk about some milk toast issue, then, you know, it's not really, it's not really driving a conversation. So there's an effort here to reflect people's lived experiences. Of course, we want, uh, we want people to, like, to understand that, you know, we can look at hate or racism from a variety of angles, but if you don't take into perspective the people who are most affected by it, then we're ignoring the most important voice in that conversation. So for us, it's about making sure that we're working with those who are amplifying that and to make sure that their voices are centered. So before we get into the survey and kind of echoing what you just said, I, I did note that your organization has put out a statement about the National Day of Remembrance of the Quebec mosque attack and action against Islamophobia. Why do you feel that 
this, you know, recognition of this attack and having this day is so important? Well, I can tell you personally, I, I was a volunteer for the National Council of Kenya Muslims back when it happened. And the night it happened, I got a call from Amira Al-Gawabi, who was a communications director. And she asked me to go out to Quebec City the next morning to just help people on the ground and the community on the ground. So I did a little bit of media relations work. I did some, I spoke to a bunch of victims. I went to, and I was just, I bore witness to a really tragic moment. And to me, you know, for me, if I may, I, I, would, I would just love to share a quick story. I remember there was, a, there was a six-year-old girl who was at the back of the mosque that night. And this is, you know, one of the things that I'd heard when I was, when I was there. And she was just playing. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a mosque, but like usually the people are praying in the front and there's kids like running around like pandemonium in the back. And so that was what she was doing. And that's when the gunman came in and she saw her dad shot. And when the men at the back saw what, ha- what, was, what was happening, they jumped on top of her to save her. And when the gunman turned to her to shoot, he ran out of bullets. So for, for me, she survived that night. Her father survived that night, but six other people didn't. So for me, this is a, an important moment because it puts into perspective as a nation, the loss that that represented, the hate that it represented. And, and I think it's a reminder for generations to come, hopefully, of how we think that these things happen in different places. We think that incitement to violence happens in different places. We think Islamophobia happens in other places. We don't think that it's gonna happen here. We don't think that when, when people incite violence, that the impact of it is gonna land at our doorstep. We don't think that, that people will take a gun and, and create these moments of, of mass violence here in Canada. But the reality is that it did land on our doorstep. And I think that as Canadians, we need to make sure that we remember that. And then also for communities to remember that we need to make sure that we don't allow this type of hate to foster again. And also for us to do a bit of a national checkup every year against what the fight against Islamophobia looks like. Because we all have a responsibility to make sure that it, it, you know, it is addressed, just like we are addressing and are attempting to address you know, anti-Black racism, anti-Semitism, and anti-Asian sentiment, anti-Indigenous sentiment, all of it. But this is an important marker for when we take a national checkup on when where our fight against Islamophobia is. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's a profoundly moving personal reason that you gave. I mean, I think it's, it's important to put it in context, but it's a very... Sorry, you know, it's, it's, the words. It's, 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 it's a lot. It's difficult, it's difficult when, honestly, for me, I was very moved when that happened. I was, to be honest, I, I was just, I was, I was welling up at home quite a bit when I heard uh, that it was going to happen because, you know, a few of us were, were at the beginning of that. Like we were the ones who created the campaign to start it three years ago. And then, and then so many other people have kind of jumped on and, and they've, they've taken it. I mean, I haven't done anything on, on the issue on, on a couple of years now, but, you know, just seeing how the community has kind of fought for it to make sure it's happened, but also, you know, when you've seen bloody carpets and bullet holes, you know, it, and, and you see that people are recognizing the hurt that that's created, for me, it was, it was, it was very moving. I 
thank you for sharing that. Everything you just said is just so profoundly moving and important. I think it really does set the context for why this survey itself is so important in terms of, you know, A, just doing a checkup, as you said, to see where we are in terms of having this conversation, but also at a time when we're seeing our federal legislators look into this issue, this may actually also provide them some guidance. So if we look at the issue itself or the findings of the survey, it found that 93% of Canadians believe that online hate speech and racism are a problem. Of that 93%, almost half, or 49% believe it's a very serious problem. And that there's also a lot of support for legal measures to actually do something about. 80% of people supported a takedown within 24 hours. Four out of five believe that we should be strengthening laws to hold people who engage in hate speech accountable. And 79% of Canadians do support social media companies providing information to law enforcement when there are these uh, grave incidents that occur online. And I guess what surprised me is that your survey broke that down into people on the left and people on the right. But it's really kind of pan-Canadian, like even people who you would feel might be a bit more libertarian, say on the right, 63% of them support these measures by and large, which was a really interesting finding to me. So I guess I'm kind of prospecting what the findings of this poll are to you. I'm wondering what you found interesting about the poll when you got the results back. We were shocked by the numbers, to be frank. We weren't expecting there to be such a high level of support for all the legislative tools, but also I think in terms of just the volume of hate that people are experiencing and it's not just hate, right? It's, it's, it's so much more. There's, there's the sexual harassment, there's incitement of violence, there's, you know, just polarization, there's homophobia. We tested on so many different things and all of them, the level of experience that people are finding is so high. Honestly, what I took from the survey is that people are sick and tired of it. And the online environment is not a place where you trust. Like, like let me ask you a question. Like, if you have a 12-year-old kid that you got to give yourself, got to give a cell phone to because, you know, they're, all the rest of their friends have one. You're feeling guilty about kind of not holding, holding off and giving it to them for, for so long. Do you honestly feel comfortable knowing what's out there that you're giving that person that access? It's like, okay, I... I got to do it because I got to do it. But like, I don't know. And I, I think we're just used to seeing so much nastiness online that this survey was very reflective of that, of that, that general sick and tiredness of like how bad it's gotten, that there's no controls towards it, that there's no sense. Like if you take your family to the town square and some crazy person saying hateful stuff, you walk away and you're okay. And then if you, if it's really bad, then you call the cops on that I was to say, yeah, I was about right? to say, at least uh, like probably law enforcement would be involved at some point because it, you know, that's not unacceptable, but, but online there's, there's, it there's is. There's no limits. There's <laughs> yeah. nothing. It's, so it's it, the wild west. So what you're saying is like, there, you felt in reading the results of the survey that there's a genuine frustration at the lack of accountability. The lack of accountability and just the environment. It's just gotten so, so, so bad that I think people are just sick and tired and, and, and want to see a change in it. If you look at our survey and you know, just look at all the measures that we have tested, I don't think there's a single one of them that has less than 60% worth of support. 
almost every single one of them, either high 70s or 80s or like mid 70s on everything from requiring social media companies to reveal uh, user identities who commit hateful or racist uh, behaviors on their platforms. 71% in favor, you know, like for social media companies to publicly and regularly report the number of hate incidents that have occurred on their platform, 73%. It just goes on and on and on. People are sick and tired of, of the environment that is online. And I think they are looking to their governments to to find solutions to make it better. In a lot of ways, when I read this, I would, I would, one of the things that stood out for me, as you said, is the level of support for some kind of regulation. And we often hear talking heads say, oh, we got to do this balance between free speech and, and restrictions, and we have to be so careful of free speech. But that doesn't seem to be where the public is, right? The public seems to have moved from there in terms of at least supporting more online regulations, and at least the government taking steps in this way. I suppose the only statistic I saw where I thought maybe the numbers were a bit off was that only 42% reported seeing or experiencing racism or homophobia online. I'm like, are, are these people on Twitter? Maybe not Twitter. Maybe they have very closed Facebook accounts. But when it comes to racialized Canadians, they tend to experience racism and, and kind of some kind of hate speech against them three times more than non-racialized Canadians. So I'm sorry, did you just say 42% of people facing racism online was a low statistic? I, well, I kind of, yeah, I thought, I thought wouldn't more people, I mean, uh, when I'm on Twitter, I- What's an acceptable number for that? Oh, it's, I don't think it's acceptable. I think it's terrible. I just thought it was low. Cause I'm but like- how can it be a low number? It can't I mean, be a low I number. Some, 42, I feel, four out of 10 people are seeing racist stuff online? I Come just, on. <laughs> Well, no, okay. It's not great. Like I would say it's not great, but I mean, in my, I, that's not the basis for not doing anything. I just kind of like, I feel like in my everyday experience online, and maybe it's because of the, the work that I do, I feel like I see comments mostly every day. So it's not that I, God I thought, not all of us are security specialists. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's not, it's not a pretty world. So I kind of thought to myself, geez, that, that maybe that seems low that only 42% have seen because at least in my experience, I feel like it's something that, you know, I, I, I wrestle with every day, but to be fair, I'm, I'm paid to maybe look in the dark hole a little bit more than, than other people. <laughs> but I mean, I think that the, then, you know, like you said, when you, when it comes then to racialized Canadians, that they see this far more than, you know, non-racialized Canadians. It, it makes a little bit more sense, but still I thought, are, are people, maybe they're just not recognizing the, the problem when, when they maybe see they're it. Maybe they're numb. Or, may, or they, maybe they're numb. That's possible too. It's, it's, it's hard to say, but I thought that was one thing I thought, like I would have thought more Canadians would have seen it. It's already unacceptably high at 42%, uh, just to be clear. No, I said 42% is, in my opinion, you know, four out of 10 people going online are seeing hate, like, like racist stuff. I mean, that's just unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I don't know how like any policymaker looks at that and says, oh, okay, well, it's not 50%. You know, like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know who could, like, how, how they could ever think well, that. But, but we need another no, 8% before we really we're gonna get moving. No, that's not what I meant. I just kind of felt like there's probably a lot more out of there. I was just kind of surprised that it was only 42%. I, I thought more people would have seen it, but I, I guess, yeah, no, I, no, I, take I mean, your point I, very I, much. I, I, I I hear what you're saying. I, I agree with you that like we expect everyone to be seeing and understanding racism. But actually, when you look at like there's a really interesting statistic that I, I don't think really anybody is paying attention to. But when you look at 18 to 29 year olds and like when we broke it down from 
have you experienced or you've seen either sexual harassment, incitements to violence, offensive name calling, racist, racism comments or content, physical threats, like physical threats was at 54% yeah. on like from 18 to 29 year olds, physical threats. They like, had seen it or experienced it. I mean, these, it's staggering by like that, you know, the generation that is coming up from 18 to 29 year old, like sure they're on social media more, probably living three quarters of the life there right now, if not more. However, like between that demographic, like their level of either awareness of what racism is or any of those things are, or their identity, be able to just say that, yeah, I've seen it and I've experienced it, is so high. It's Some things are at 70%, some things are at high 50s. Like, like, a, like a, a majority of in all statistics, they are facing this type of environment. So they're almost kind of expecting to see that online. Right. It's a, and that's a very distressing statistic, actually. Yeah. I mean, like, no one, I, like, if I, you know, growing up in Mississauga, if some, something racist happened to me, it was a bit of a shock to the whole system. It's like, oh, hey, that was that was racist. You know, you don't want to do that. But this is just, this is 70% of like 18 to 29 year olds saying, yeah, we see that on the regular. Wow. And that, that's, that, I think about that. Like, what does that actually say about like the world that we've created for the future generation? So that then actually leads me to my next question, which is, what do you think are the social and policy implications of the findings of the survey? The fact that there is widespread support for this, but on the other hand, that we're having, you know, as you say, 18 to 29 year olds, 54% seeing physical threats of violence online. We need a correction. There, like, I mean, I've, I come from labor. So the way I kind of look at it, to be frank, is, you know, we used to live in a time when health and safety laws were saying, well, we can't do this or we can't do that in different workplaces. And then eventually we started creating a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until, you know, we've built a structure of workplace safety that includes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I think that right now, like, because this online environment is so new, we're still trying to figure it out. There's lots of push and pulls politically around it. But I think that there's a wide recognition. This survey is a demonstrative of that wide recognition that it is the Wild West. We can't just let it be. What it's doing is harmful. And one thing I, I regretted not including in this poll are mental health impacts right. of, of what, and I kind of was kicking myself afterwards to say, there's a way for me to kind of gathered a bit more understanding about what the effect of that would be especially the 18 to 29 year olds who I think are acutely more aware and have been impacted by this, it would have been good for us to have that because, you know, like we're seeing teen suicides going up, we're seeing depression going up, we're seeing anxiety going up. And there's, there, I, I can only assume that there's a correlation between what they're seeing online. It'd be interesting and to so- find out. Yeah, but also, I mean, like for sexual harassment, I wonder how like people are feeling with that and that's creating, there's, there's tons of evidence how, you know, sexual harassment has created mental health issues. And I think, you know, if, if we were to just look at like just the experience of what people are taking, are, are feeling over here and then trying to find out what the implications of what that experience looks like, I think that would be an even more jarring moment for, for society to say, okay, here, wow, 
this this is what the impact of us leaving it unchecked looks like. So what would you say then to someone they're like, look, I'm a free speech kind of person. I believe that, you know, the best way to counter hate speech is more speech. I believe that, you know, it is unreasonable for the government to determine what is considered to be offensive speech. Like how would you because you get this a lot anytime this issue comes up, that this is a dangerous, that it's a slippery slope, that if the government starts going down this road, the next thing you know is we're going to be living in, in a much less free society and that this is a, a serious problem. So I mean, I'm just curious, like, how would you answer that? I'm of two minds of that, to be honest. Right. Like, I I get the free speechers. I I mean, I, I myself am a free speecher. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I'm in that camp too, where I'm like, I don't want a restriction of, of, of free speech on there. But I also think that there's, there's two real, like there's two narratives on this one. One is, you know, people who don't want to have any restrictions and people who look at it from a harm reduction perspective to right. say, how do, how do we reduce harm online? And the answer is not just let it be. That, that's just not the answer. But I also take, you know, a bit of offense to some of like these people that, that are just throwing just a pure free speechers. Because in Canada, we don't have free speech. We have cyberbullying laws as well. Do we, do we, like, cyberbullying laws are also a restriction of free speech. We have child pornography laws. We have hate speech laws. And these are all restrictions of one's freedom of expression, are they not? But yet, like we don't, they don't care about they don't care about like, touting free speech over there, but they care about touting free speech when we're trying to address hate and racism. I ain't buying it. <laughs> so in other words, and do you maybe feel that these people are, have not experienced perhaps what the, you know, we, we already went over the, the magic number 42 of can, percent of Canadians who've experienced or witnessed this. And then, you know, the three times that amount for racialized Canadians, it, is, is it the fact that they, they're just not aware of how many people are going through this? I think there's, there's like, for me, I don't like any impediments to me being able to express an opinion. Right. I think an opinion, whether fair or unfair, should be allowed. As long as it's not hateful, it's not causing detrimental harm to somebody else. I think there's ample opportunity in this world to make, and I'm, I'm reluctant on how these things get policed. And so on that end, I'm totally in the camp of the free, free speechers on that one. Because I, there, there needs to be a very, very calculated way of ensuring that whatever mechanisms are created to restrict hate online are done in a very accountable, open, transparent, a clear, defined way. And I think that Without that, it won't have a level of confidence. People would just think that it's just the government restricting their speech because they want to have a right to be as jerkish as they like to. And I mean, I don't like the jerks. I get lots of them that are <laughs> tweeting at me all the time. But, you know, I, they got to do what they got to do. And I'm not reporting them to anybody. But... I do think that there are lines that are crossed. And I think that, you know, Canada has hate speech laws because we as a society have deemed that we got to have a little bit of some civility in our conversation that we need to protect in order to make sure that, that we have a open functioning 
inclusive democracy, and 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 that's a, that's the choices we that we have Canadians have made at the expense of free speech. Right. Like those laws exist till like already. So from your point, I guess what I'm taking is like it's you know we've already made this trade off in the public sphere, as you said, like if you're in a public square you wouldn't be able to get away with saying a lot of the things that people habitually or regularly say online uh, because we want to have a certain level of social stability. We want people feel relatively safe walking through that square. But as we increasingly move our lives online, the fact is having a toxic internet is not going to help Canadians in any particular way. I honestly think that we need to figure out a way to to make it better, not just for older people like myself, but for the next generation. I'm really scared of the trend of, that we've seen over the last 10 years. I'm really scared to see how that's going to get worse. And I don't, and I think that without any pushback against that, that's like, that's agreed upon by society, that it is going to just get worse and worse and worse. And I'm really afraid the social impacts that will have on people, especially on young people. So I'm wondering if in having done the survey, in, in raising these issues, I don't, want to, I don't want you to spill the beans on any particular conversation, but have you been speaking at all to any of the social media companies about this and, and the of concerns? Course. Right. And what yeah, have you been saying I, to them? That I don't trust you to do it on your own. <laughs> might be an awkward conversation. <laughs> no, no, I say that like, quite openly because they failed at it. And, right. and I think they recognize that too. Like they, they know that they can't do it on their own, that they, they, they because they also don't want to be arbitrators of what is or isn't uh, hate speech. They don't want to be the restrictors or the arbitrators of the restriction of hate speech because to be frank, that's not their job. Their job is to put up a platform and to get eyes on glued to cell phones. And I think like, so for them, I mean, like, I think that every time I've spoken to them about this, they're like, well, give us a regulation and we'll abide by it. I'm not hundred percent sure if I buy that either. Cause we've seen in different places that, you know, there's like, there's always ways that they can resist it. Because I think that for them and anybody who, who's worked in and around politics knows this, that like, if you want to be if you want to get more attention, you have to be a bit louder, a bit slightly, maybe a bit more obnoxious, slightly a bit more cutting than the other person, because that's how you get through the crowd. And I think social media companies know that. They amplify that, the ones who do that. And that's how we've seen that rise in polarity. Because to them, it's just about maximizing time on device. For us, it's about which voices are getting the most airtime and which ones are not as a society, because as a society, we need to, we need to make sure that, you know, the conversation is seen as one that's civil, but you know, that, that allows people to say what they want, but that the insane voices on the side are not being seen as the normative uh, voices of today. And, you know, how do we control that? And I think social media has worked completely in the opposite direction of such. Because to them, it's just about making sure people are online more versus, and they know that like that is going is, to, that is what's going to bring people back on their devices. It's not going to be like, oh, like Mohammed Hashim said something that was really milk toast. 
you know, they don't <laughs> care about that. <laughs> I don't, they I don't care. know. I'm in the, I think I'm in the minority that really likes the nerdy kind of milk toast, but you know, and maybe some of our podcast listeners, but I agree. It's, it's the, I mean, it's the Marjorie Taylor green syndrome. I think sometimes that we're seeing that the fact that the, um, squeakiest wheel or the most unhinged wheel tends to get the media attention, the social media attraction. So, you know, I really appreciate your time. And I guess the last question I have for you is how can our listeners learn more about your work and what the foundation is doing? Well, you can definitely follow us on social media. See at where on Twitter at CRRF. You can find me at Mo Hashem on Twitter as well. And you know, our website is the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. If you Google us, you'll find us. But, you know, I, what I would really appreciate people, listeners do is just, you know, take five minutes, look at our survey, see if something is jarring in there, and have one conversation with somebody who you may think may agree or disagree about it. And then at least you put online hate on the map to somebody else. Because I think the issue around... Uh, it needs is deserving of attention. It's not getting enough attention. I think it's something that we need to be able to to move forward on, and it's only going to happen when more people are engaged in the conversation. That is a great note to end on, and we'll be sure to uh, link to the survey and uh, make sure that people know where to find you on social media. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for sharing your uh, very moving experience in, in Quebec City. And I just want to thank you for talking to us about these very important issues. Thank you for having me.